fuck, you better pull over and yeah. see. As far back as we can remember, we always wanted to be gangsters. To us, being gangsters was better than being the president of the United States. Even before we wandered into this podcast, we were paying tribute to guys who were somebodies in neighborhoods full of nobodies. They did whatever they wanted. They double parked in front of a hydrant, nobody ever gave them a ticket. In the summer when they played cards all night, nobody ever called the cops on them. So it's only right we started this thing of ours to make sure their stories live on. Because if we left it up to them, they wouldn't get around to it. See, they move slow. But it's only because they don't have to move for anybody. So without ratting or saying too much, I'd like to welcome you to this thing of ours. Welcome everybody to this thing of ours, a new podcast where we sit down and discuss some of our favorite and some of the most notorious mobsters of all time. My name is Vince Correa, aka Vince the Kid, aka Ice Pick Vince. You don't want to know how I got that name. I'm here with my co-host. Take it away, G. It's Chewy Wop. You know Wop, because I'll wop your ass if you disrespect me. Oh my boy. Yeah, and it's Chewy. You ain't even got to know his last name. He got a couple wiretaps on him right now. We're trying to work that out with the feds. That's why we're doing this thing of ours to talk about other gangsters. You know what I'm saying? You ain't got to know too much about us. I'm just playing. We actually are not gangsters at all. But one thing that kind of unites me and Chewy is our fascination with mafia movies, all that kind of stuff. If you ask us, I'm sure me and you will both say that our favorite movie is Goodfellas. For sure, man. We know that shit from front to back. We know every line of that movie. One of our favorite movies, and which is kind of why I asked Chewie to come along and do this thing of ours with me, because I know he's just as interested in this stuff as I am, and I hope that when we present it to you guys, you guys are just as interested in it as we are. So let's get straight into it, man. Let's introduce the first mobster we'll be talking about on this show. I know this fucking guy. Chewie knows this fucking guy. Why don't you go ahead and introduce this guy this that we know? I know this fucking guy, man. Let me get into this. His name is Lucky Luciani. But his original name was Salvatore Lucania, original hometown Sicily, Italy, born on November 24th, 1897. He was one of the five children of Antonio and Rosalina. Antonio, Lucky's father, was a soulful miner in Sicily. His father was really ambitious and determined to move to the United States. Finally, in April 1906, when Lucky was only nine years old, his family moved to the United States and found themselves in New York. They lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where it was a really popular place for Italian immigrants, and a lot of them were suffering from poverty and finding a proper way to get by. Lucky knew he had to do whatever he had to do to survive, man. And at a really young age, he was really creative with his crime. He was a, he was a member of the Five Point Gang, and unlike other criminals, 
Lucky and his friends ran a protection racket. They went around offering protection to young Jewish kids that were getting smacked around by Italians and Irish gangs who were trying to finesse them. And it was actually funny because at this time was when Lucky actually met someone by the name of Meyer Lansky, who would then go on to help him kind of change the entire landscape of organized crime. There was actually an old tale that while Lucky was going around doing this and extorting all these Jewish kids and forcing them to pay him for protection and everything, he actually went up to a group of kids and tried to shake them down. But one of the kids in that group was basically told him, hey, go fuck off. Like, just because I'm a little Jewish kid doesn't mean you can come around and just take all of my money. Oh, my God, balls. <laughs> yeah, he had, he had some balls on him. And so when this got to Lucky and he realized he wasn't able to t- shake this kid down, he kind of had respect for him. And was like, okay, I kind of want to work with this guy. And that little Jewish kid was Meyer Lansky. And after that incident, you know, Lucky didn't collect from him. He had respect for him. And they started really working together and forming what we now know as organized crime and the mafia as a whole. So now if we fast forward kind of in Lucky's career, it's around the 1920s. And this is where he really starts making a name for himself as a hitman for the boss, Joe Masseria. Now, a little background on Joe Masseria is he was a crime boss on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, the same area that Lucky was from, and people often talked of him as if he was like an arrogant man. They always called him a slob. He used to be known for having these huge meals, and he would spill pasta all over himself. He was kind of gross, but he was the boss, so people kind of respected and feared him. And we can get into him another day and give him his own episode, but for right now, you just need to know that he was the boss, and he was an old-school kind of Italian gangster who gave Lucky his start. And it's also important to keep in mind that also during this time was the start of Prohibition. Alcohol had just became illegal. Few people were dibbling and dabbling in, like, illegal bootlegging and all that stuff, so there was a lot of money to be made, but you needed to be innovative and forward-thinking like someone like Lucky Luciano. So at this time, Luciano had moved up in Masseria's gang ranks. He was now seen as his right-man man. And he was very connected to a lot of guys in the mafia, like Frank Costello and Lucchese. And during this time, he met his mentor, a man by the name of Arnold Ralstein. Arnold Ralstein's another guy who will give his own episode because he has a crazy story. But just a quick overview of who he was. He was basically the brains and the money behind the entire mafia. He was a big-time gambler. And he was someone who wanted to control every racket that he could get his hands on. And a lot of people refer to him as the pioneer of kind of prohibition and bootlegging. It was his idea that instead of being like the other people at the time who were just making their own liquor, that they would import liquor from Europe and it would be this wonderful rum and whiskey and all kinds of things. And that's how they would make their money. And Lucky at this time knew Ralstein was kind of being groomed by him and started really working with him and learning from him what it truly meant to be a racketeer and a businessman. So all of this is going on. Lucky kind of sees where Prohibition is kind of going as far as the direction and the money that they could be making. So he went to Masseria and told him like, hey, I'm working with this guy, Arnold Rothstein, this Jewish guy. And right at there, Masseria was like, no, 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 no. He was a mustache Pete. He was old school in the sense that they didn't trust anybody who wasn't Italian. So the thought of working with Jewish gangs was like the worst idea to Masseria. So he like shut it down. And that really messed with Lucky because he didn't subscribe to that way of thinking. He was all about making money. And it didn't matter if you were Italian or you were Jewish. If it was good for business, then he would work with you. 
There's actually like this old kind of folk tale where people said that a lot of times Lucky, when he was discussing business with people and doing business with Jewish guys and Irish gangs and stuff like that, he would pull out a dollar bill and he would show it to everybody in the room and he'd say, does this look Italian to you? Does this look Jewish to you? Does this look Irish to you? No, it looks like something that we can all have. So that was like his way of thinking is that money was for everybody and there was enough of it to go around. So he wanted to make sure that everybody was getting a piece of the pie. And this was the same time he was still working with Ralstein and really under his wing. Ralstein started teaching him everything. He was teaching him how to dress. He was teaching him how to act and how to start thinking of crime more as a business and how they can use what was going on in Prohibition to kind of model what bigger companies were doing and turn crime into an enterprise. Isn't this around time that he got caught selling heroin? Yeah, that's funny because it actually is. And it kind of tied into the whole story because when he got caught, he went to jail and everyone was kind of looking at him funny. Yeah, I'm pretty sure like cause he lost fucking respect from like his government, his homeboys. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, well, he goes to jail and in order to get himself out of jail and save his ass, he kind of flips and gives some of the police officers names of other guys who are running around in the streets and that's how he got out i'm pretty sure like that she got around like and people <laughs> were not fucking with him no more <laughs> nothing like that he was pretty much lost when he got out so he gets back on the street and he's like damn like now people are looking at me funny i lost a few of my connections so he goes to ralstein and is like yo how do we fix this how do i get my name back he wants to be popping no more. Yeah, he wants to get back popping. He's back on the streets. He needs his name up. He needs his rep up. So Arnold Rothstein tells him, hey, there's a big boxing match coming up. What you got to do is you got to get tickets for every single seat that's in the front row. Buy out all the tickets and then go around town and give them to all your old political connections. Give them to your gangster friends. Just make sure everybody's coming that night and they know they got their tickets from Lucky Luciano. Fucking flexing. Flex it on him. He goes, and that's actually exactly what he did. He goes in on the day of the fight. He walks in. And people guess know who it is. Lucky Luciano. Walking flexing. <laughs> he's got his white cap on. He's got a press suit. Everyone's looking at him. They know he's the one that supplied them with the tickets. They want to know who this guy is. They want to go shake his hand. They want to talk to him and find out, you know, who is Lucky Luciano. And how do you get all this power? So, because Arnold Rothstein is a great PR agent, it actually works, and Lucky gets his power back, he's back on the streets, people are looking at him and they respect him, but even though he's got his political connections back and everything like that, both him and Rothstein, they roll the dice when it comes to the rackets that they take over, and even though Lucky got caught, he was telling him like, hey, prohibition is going to end soon, they're going to legalize alcohol, and we're going to have to find a new racket, so why not move in on the heroin trade? And Ralstein, being a huge gambler and somebody who wanted to take control of every single racket, was like, okay, let's do this. So in the midst of all this, people are starting to see money. And it was time that they started organizing the crime and being more strategic with the way that they were importing heroin and getting all their drugs out. And everyone was... So you're saying that they were being more careful? Yeah, they were... They were a lot more careful. It almost seemed more legit. And there was a lot of money to go around. And a lot of people were seeing this. And so that's where it actually leads into Salvatore Maranzano coming to town. So all of this money, all of this power, everything going on around this time, it's around 1925, and Maranzano comes to town. He, like Lucky, is another gangster from Sicily. 
But you fuck with people from your hood. <laughs> you gotta stick with them. Well, actually, at the time, it was kind of tense because he comes over. Oh, Lucky was working still with Masseria. Maranzano comes over from Sicily, and he was more educated. And like I talked about earlier, Masseria was kind of a slob. He didn't really take care of himself. He wasn't that smart. He was just kind of ruthless, and that's how he came to power. But Maranzano, on the other hand, he was more educated. He actually loved and researched Caesar and would use his kind of military and army techniques to kind of run his family and run his organization. So when Maranzano comes to town and he's dealing with Masseria, Masseria was the boss of all bosses at that time. Even with Ralstein in power, even with Lucky doing his things on the side, the still, the go-to guy was Masseria because he was the boss of the entire family. And he was actually taking tribute, which was taking like a piece of every other mobster's earnings so if they sold drugs if they did prostitution or whatever they had control of they had to pay he had to get the cut cut. like paulie and goodfellas he was paulie and goodfellas they had to kick up a little something to him smack some people around (laughs) but when maranzano comes to town because he's more of like i'm taking over he's not gonna he tells masseria to go fuck himself i'm the captain now he's the captain now he comes in and he's like i'm taking over i'm doing my shit and you're not getting anything from me and of course, when Masseria finds this out, obviously it breaks out into this huge war called the Castellamarse War. There was bodies being dropped all over in New York, left and right, people were dying. And somebody who was innovative and literally just trying to make money at this point, like Lucky, was looking at this whole war like it was bad for business because bodies are dropping no matter how many cops you pay off in the city. If there's 20, 30 guys getting killed in the street, it's still going to bring cops into the neighborhood. It makes the block hot. hot. (laughs) Shit gets hot on the street. You can't work like that. Lucky lucky can't work. And so he gets pissed and he just wants to end this shit. He's, He's tired of it. So 18 months into this Castilla Marseille war, Lucky turned on Masseria. He was like, this guy needs to go. He's obviously not making the right decision. So he actually approaches Maranzano, tells him, hey, I want to share this power with you. I want me and you to be the heads of these two families and kind of run things together. So I will go and I will kill my boss, Joe Masseria. I'll take control of the gang. And then me and you can share power. Maranzano likes this idea because he doesn't have to go through this war because everybody knows wars cost money and everything. So he says, yeah, sure. So Lucky devises this plan. It's an easy way out for him, exactly. So Lucky invites his old boss to dinner because, like I said earlier, Masseria was a slob. He loved big meals and everything. So Lucky tells him, hey, let's go out. He picks this restaurant that he knows he's not going to say no to. And, of course, Masseria shows up. And then it gets real godfathery with Michael Carleone on his shit. Lucky's sitting there. He's having dinner with him. He says, hey, let me go go to the restroom. He gets up. He walks away. All of a sudden, because Lucky was a genius and had connections everywhere, Masseria's own bodyguards just disappear. They're at nowhere to be found. Four gunmen walk into the restaurant. Boom. They shoot Masseria, cap his ass, and he's dead. Sukalamink. Sukalamink. Chewie knows Italian. I mean, suck my dick. You heard? (laughs) So anyways, Masseria's dead. Lucky takes over. And now... Maranzano and Lucky are kind of running the show. Maranzano comes in. He calls a meeting. All the gangsters in New York, they get together, and he puts together what becomes known as the infamous five families. Fun fact is that the mobsters did not refer themselves as a family. 
the FBI actually labeled them as a family. What they would do is like, hey, I work for so-and-so. Yeah, so now Lucky actually is that so-and-so. He's the leader of one of these families that later becomes known as the Genovese family. And under this new leadership that him and Marizano kind of put together, they said that all the families would have to have an underboss and soldiers. So again, Marizano's kind of pushing this military kind of tactics to taking on the mafia. But still, even though they wiped out Masseria and it was supposed to kind of blow things over, Maranzano let the power get to him and he made himself what was known as the boss of all bosses. And he was still in charge of all of the five families, even though, you know, Lucky had his family and different other gangsters that was in charge of their families. Still, the boss of all bosses was Maranzano. Nobody could question him. And if you did, he'd have you whacked. You'd be dead. So then, even after this, this is supposed to kind of promote like this kind of unity amongst gangsters and everything so they can really get their money. But Maranzano kind of starts breaking his promises that everyone would be equal and he starts making decisions that would only benefit his family. And when Lucky kind of caught wind of this, he was super pissed off because this wasn't how things were supposed to go. And he knew that he was going to have to eventually whack Maranzano. So he started plotting on how he was going to do it. But... Again, you have two people who are kind of smart and, and strategic in the way that they do things. So Maranzano kind of knew that Lucky was going to be like this. He knew he was a threat. He knew he was smart and he wasn't going to let this shit slide. So Maranzano, as his own kind of insurance, hired a hitman to kill Lucky and was kind of ready to go whenever he gave the green light. They were going to go out and they were going to kill Lucky. But gangster i kind of briefly mentioned earlier one of lucky's early associates who was now kind of working beside maranzano and really in the in crowd with him was a guy by the name of lucchese and he actually went to luciano and was like hey you got money on your head like maranzano wants to get you killed bounty on you (laughs) he had put a bounty on him he wanted to get him killed he wanted to get him out of here so that he could really be the boss of all bosses and nobody would even try him yo check this shit out man your boy you're (laughs) You're getting a call from your boy, like, hey, yo, your man <laughs> has a hit on you. Like, you imagine what's going through him? Imagine what's going through, like, his head? Like, yo, like, your boy has a hit on you. Yeah, they had a hit on him, so Lucky was like, okay, I need to, this is kill or be killed, basically. If I don't get Maranzano the fuck out of here, he's probably gonna kill me. And Lucky, being smart, as he always is, he knows that like Masseria, Maranzano was considered a mustache Pete. And what that means was that they were super old school. I think I might have mentioned it a little bit earlier, but they didn't trust anybody who wasn't Italian. And he kind of poked his chest out a little bit and were like, yo, we're the Italian gangsters. We're the toughest of the tough. I'm not worried about no Jewish gangs. They, they pose no threat to me. And Lucky used that to get close to him. Because at the time, Maranzano had a lot of IRS agents going in and out of his office you know, he was a gangster, so they were trying to catch him on things. So they were always going in and out of the office. So what Lucky did was he had a few of his Jewish hitmen friends. It's rumored to say that one of them was Bugsy Siegel. And that's a huge gangster we'll talk about. Somebody who kind of created Las Vegas and made it what it is today. Bugsy Siegel, a hitman at the time and a young Jewish kid working for Luiciano and a couple other guys posed as IRS agents. They went into Maranzano's place in 1931. Nobody thought anything of it because, again, they were kind of stereotypical and profiling them. Here come these Jewish kids. They're just IRS agents. They're nobodies. So they let him in. 
when they finally got in the room alone with Maranzano, they started stabbing the shit out of him. They hit him up several times. They slashed his throat. Maranzano, being a fucking tough son of a bitch, put up a fight, and he still wasn't going down. So he's trying to fight him off. He's stabbed up. He's bleeding out of his neck. And finally, they shot him four times and killed Maranzano. And this is when Lucky became, quote-unquote, the king of New York. New York, New York. He was the top dog. He was running everything. And he had his right-hand man beside him who kind of helped him throughout this entire process, was always with him, riding with him through day one. And this was that young, tough Jewish kid that he tried to shake down years ago. It was Meyer Lansky. And they became what was known as the dynamic duo of the mafia. Lansky was the perfect underboss because he was Jewish he could never actually be in the mafia. And despite this new relationship with the Jewish guys and the Italians, when it comes to the Italian mafia, in order to be a made guy and really be a part of it, you had to be 100% Italian. We saw From the that. roots. From the roots. We saw that in Goodfellas when they didn't let Henry, Henry and Jimmy in. It could only be Tommy. But so that's kind of where it's at right now. There is no power struggle between the two because Lansky knew he could never be the boss. He couldn't be the boss of the Italian mafia because he was Jewish. He wasn't Italian. And that really made for a perfect union. And they really started taking the world on as the mafia. And they had the fucking world by their balls. They were doing everything that they needed to do. And during this, they came up with the idea that they should make the mafia more like a union. They wanted to take all the five families, have them all working together. And you have to remember these guys, both Lansky and Lucky, were kind of raised by Ralstein. They kind of saw him take power, make himself like a monopoly of crime. He was the only one running everything. But they saw that if they were to kind of emulate that, there's always this threat of war. Somebody would want to be taking out Lansky or Luciano. So to prevent that... Lucky was never going to be the guy to collect tribute from everyone. The same way that Maranzano and Masseria wanted everyone to pay them a vig and, and everyone had to report back to them. He didn't want that because with that only comes more problems and just a whole bunch of bullshit that he didn't want to deal with. So he didn't want to be the boss. So at the end of 1931, he called everyone to the table from all the families and he basically laid out this new infrastructure it was like, this is how we're going to do it. We have our five families. We have our underbosses, our soldiers. We're going to keep all that, the same thing that Maranzano created. Only now there's going to be a consigliere. And the consigliere acts as like the guy who is the controller of everything that goes on within a family. So if there's an issue and somebody needs to get killed, they got to go to the consigliere. The they got to talk to him. He gives the green light. It's very structured. It's it's kind of ridiculous because it's people's lives on the line. They're deciding whether they're going to fucking kill somebody or not. He calling the shots <laughs> on every family. But exactly. He was the one to be like, is this worth it? What are they going to be the repercussions of it? And, and how we, should we do this best to where we move forward? And each family had those. And they kind of reported back to the commission, which was what Lucky kind of created at the time. And every decision that got made had to go through the commission. If you were a made guy and you were in the mafia, you did the blood oath, you did everything, the mafia basically had a life insurance policy for you. You weren't going to get killed because any time anybody wanted to test you or do anything to you, they had to go to the commission. And nine times out of the 10, the commission wasn't going to approve a killing of a made guy. Yeah. So that kind of encouraged people to give more of their loyalty to organized crime. And that is what kind of created the entire mafia as we know it as organized crime. And what's interesting 
kind of a side note, something why we kind of call this podcast this thing of ours is because of this moment, which is why we wanted to kind of start off talking about Lucky Luciano. Because when he makes this commission, originally it was called Our Thing, which translated in Italian was Cosa Nostra. So that's what it was called. It was our thing. It was their own little personal union that they had, and they were going to work together. So it was the Cosa Nostra, or in English, our thing. Well, fast forward a few years later, when the FBI is now kind of going after Cosa Nostra, they started calling it La Cosa Nostra. And La Cosa Nostra didn't technically translate to anything. The translation for it from Italian to English would be the our thing, which obviously doesn't make any sense. So then as like the years kind of passed on, they gave it the name, this thing of ours, which again, it's why we named yeah. the podcast this. So shout out to Lucky Luigiano for giving us the name of this podcast. And it's just something cool that we found out about it. And I, I think it's dope that it kind of created this. And Lucky was like the Steve Jobs of the mafia. He was super innovative, thought of all these things. And now he's got this commission. He's got his guy, Meyer Lansky, on his side. And now they're ready to take on the world and really make organized crime what we know of it today. So with the commission in place, the mob started making billions of dollars. They're making money. They're making money. Oh, they rich, rich. Oh, you got money. (laughs) Money, money, dog. So they're making money. And again, like you have to remember, this is 1930. So a, a billion dollars is a lot of fucking money today. This is a billion dollars back then. So they were really raking in money. And this was because they had this intricate system put in place where nobody was gunning each other down. There was no killings of any mob bosses for, I think, like 20 years after Lucky put this whole thing together. It was all about making money. All about the Benjamins. Man. <laughs> it was all about the Benjamins. He started taking over every racket. He was running the prostitution rackets. He was running the drug rackets. He already had his his hands in the heroin trade, so he only grew it bigger when he had five families to work with. And was really interesting and probably one of my favorite parts about just mafia history in general was when they took over the labor unions. At this time, a lot of unions were fighting for workers' rights. They were going on strikes. The union was very prominent at the time. And mobsters somehow thought of the idea, let's take control of the unions so that any strike or anything that could ruin a business is now in our hands. So we can go and extort money from managers and bosses of these stores because, hey, you want your workers to go on strike and ruin your business? No. Then throw us a couple dollars and we'll make sure nobody's going on strike. And they used that to their advantage. That was the ultimate black hand control. And it was with overtime. Yeah, and it was overtime (laughs) over here. (laughs) They gave me 10 minute breaks. So if you get in a 10 minute break at work right now, you listen to this podcast, you can thank Lucky Luciano and the mafia for taking over the labor unions. Ain't no HR. Welcome. No HR, no nothing. Don't go thank Carol. She didn't do shit but sit on her ass all day. Give a big up to Lucky Luciano. Go out, you know, gamble a couple money, throw a couple dollars to Las Vegas because you know they still running shit out there. But, anyways, we digress. Um, so at this time, they're running all their businesses, they're pulling in all kinds of money, and what's really interesting is while they're doing this, the FBI wouldn't even go after them. J. Edgar Hoover actually denied that there was even a mafia commission, but even deeper than that, and what gets interesting is that Hoover worked for the government, and at the time, the mafia had a lot of political connections in states that mattered, like New York and Chicago, big voting states. So to go after the mafia could possibly harm some of the politicians, the same politicians that paid J. Edgar Hoover. So it was kind of like 
do you really go after these guys who might potentially hurt your career because they're helping people who are in charge of you? It was very convoluted and like they kind of had him in the corners. Kind of funny, but also you have really to be careful too. what you said too, because like he got ears in everywhere. You got government, the streets. Exactly. They're, they're hearing everything you say. So they're pretty much of their government. <laughs> they were exactly. They were the government. You could even look at the commission that they set up close to the UN, the United Nations, everything that the United States put together after the wars to kind of make sure that everybody was talking, everybody was making decisions with one another to avoid war. That's exactly what the mafia was doing. I even heard a researcher say that if you look at the UN and you take nations or states out of the UN and replace it with family, you have the exact same rules that the commission and La Cosa Nostra had. Just very interesting and kind of crazy. So anyways, these guys are kind of untouchable right now because the FBI was kind of starting to make a name for themselves and they were more occupied going after people like Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, John Dillinger, Machine Gun Kelly, because those guys were like household names. People loved watching, you know, the crime fighters chase these guys down and go after them. They weren't really concerned with Lucky Luciano and, you know, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, because at the time, nobody knew who those guys were. So they knew that they wouldn't get that much press if they were going after them. So they kind of left them alone until everything changed when Thomas E. Dewey came around. He became the chief prosecutor in charge of organized crime, and he was super determined to do whatever he could to later become a politician, and he knew that in order to do that, he'd have to take down a big name like a Lucky Luciano and kind of really start getting people to know who he was. You gotta have that big name under his belt. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta put your dues in, and he knew it, so he was going after them, and he started really using wiretaps and trying to figure out what was going on inside the mafia. So later on, while they're going through and sifting through all these wiretaps and everything, finally... They hear in a conversation that the commission was actually running over 300 whorehouses. He went, he knew what he had to do, he knew that they were in charge, so he kicks down the doors, he arrests a lot of the prostitutes and the madams, and he's got them all under arrest and nobody's saying anything because it's the mafia. Nobody wanted to snitch on them, they knew the repercussions. So what he had did was actually interesting because while the mafia had control over these whorehouses, they were also on top of that selling some of the prostitutes drugs. They were getting them all addicted to heroin because it was it was a double deal for them. They had the whorehouse, they also had the drug trade, so they were making the double money if they got the prostitutes on drugs. Get that bundle, two for one. <laughs> but it comes back and it bites him in the ass because Dewey knew this. He knew that all these prostitutes that he rounded up were addicted to heroin. So he knew after the third or fourth day when they were in jail and they started scratching the walls, they wanted to get out so they can go get their fix. They would do anything to get out of jail. Someone's talking. Somebody was talking. <laughs> so sure enough, they start talking. They end up saying that they heard Lucky Luciano kind of breaking down how the business was going to be split up and who was going to get what from everything. So word gets out to the street. One of the girls flipped. Lucky hears that now, you know, this prosecutor's gunning for him, so he tries to flee to Arkansas. But Dewey went against government rules. He sent some of his guys to kidnap Luciano while he was trying to get out of New York, and they rushed him. They brought him back to New York before anybody can find out that they they damn near kidnapped this guy. Dang. So, like that. <laughs> so that's when that's when Luke, Lucky Luciano's trial really begins. And 
Dewey did everything to get this guy, man. He had some of the madams come down because at the time, some of the madams, the women who ran the whorehouses were more trustable and they were more respected because obviously you get a prostitute up there. People might not take her word seriously because it's just a prostitute, but these women were poised. They knew how to speak well. They got on there. They testified. They said that he shook them down. He was in charge of the mafia. Dewey was doing everything to get Lucky Luciano. He even embarrassed him by bringing up how he was once arrested for heroin like we talked Dang. about earlier and he told everybody in the in the trial that lucky actually flipped back then so this big time gangster sitting in he front flipped of you once he flipped twice he was a rat at one point so everybody's kind of looking at lucky kind of weird there's even uh talks about how during the trial lucky was trying to be like this poised businessman and dewey was trying to like no you're a street rat you're a gangster you're a criminal and Lucky was trying to like win over the 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 jury because that's a lot of what these gangsters did is they presented yes, themselves a certain way. Exactly. And then they got away with everything. So he's trying to do that. I think he says a joke in court. It doesn't land. Nobody laughs. And people kind of start to see who Lucky really is. And Dewey's telling them and he convinces them that you're not in the midst of a businessman. You're not in the midst of somebody who just because he's walking around with politicians all of a sudden makes him important. You're in the midst of the greatest gangster to ever live. I think that's what he called him, which to me, and I know you, that just sounds tight. Yeah. If I was in that, I would be called the greatest gangster of all time. <laughs> I'll but, be all, all smirk. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what's not tight is what came next. And that's that the jury was convinced that Lucky Lee needed to be put away. He didn't pay taxes. He ran a prostitution racket. And the judge gave him 50 fucking years in prison. And they sent him to a prison where he had no connections. Lucky was worried, like, oh, shit, I'm going to be thrown away for 50 years. I don't know guys in this prison. They're going to shake me down. Interesting enough, somebody like Lucky still running everything in business. Still running the business in prison, my bad. So he gets in. He's, everyone refers to him as Sir, Mister. He's top dog he in prison. He got that respect. He got that respect quick. I don't know if he gave somebody a buck fifty on the first day, but he did what he had to do. Everyone respected Lucky in prison. But, of course, being a gangster, he wants to get out. He doesn't want to be cooped up in there. He's still running things. Meyer Lansky's still talking to him. They paid off a few prison guards so some of the guys can come visit him. They don't get fingerprinted. Everything's kind of going good, but it, it could be better. That's actually where this shit gets really interesting because what happens in Pearl Harbor actually affected Lucky's stay in jail. So, as you know, Pearl Harbor happens. There's an attack on the United States, and that's actually what gets the United States to enter into the Second World War. Later, in 1942, while the war is going on, a large troop carrier caught on fire and was destroyed in New York's harbor. And a lot of people on there were killed. There was a French ship. It sunk. It was destroyed. And everyone kind of had, was under the idea that, oh, that was just kind of an accident. It happened in New York. You know, the war's going on, but it was probably just an accident. But the Navy had a feeling otherwise. They thought it was sabotage. They're kind of profiling because a lot of guys that worked on the harbor were Italians and they came from Italy. And at this time, U.S. is in war with Italy. Aww. So they think that something happened on the harbor, on the docks, let's go down there, let's start talking to everybody and try to figure out what really happened. So they go down there, they're going to launch this investigation, the Navy's out there, they start talking to the people on the docks, and nobody is saying anything. Nothing. They won't talk to them, they look down on these guys who come in suits trying to investigate, tell them to fuck off, fuck get the fuck out of here, same thing 
Tommy and Goodfellas told that cop, I'll tell you something. Why don't you go fuck your mother? <laughs> so anyways, they're just not, they're not saying anything. The Navy has to go to the president at the time, Roosevelt, and tell him, hey, we can't get anybody to talk on the harbor. Like, we don't know what's going on. We don't have control of the harbor. Roosevelt being the president is like, what the fuck are you talking about? We don't have control of the harbor. I'm the fucking president. You guys are the Navy. Like, what's going on down there? And Roosevelt had connections to New York. I think he might have been like the governor or something down there at one point. So they told him like, hey, you're from New York. You know who runs the docks down there. And right away he knew it was Lucky Luciano. None of these guys were talking because every single one of those fishermen was connected to Lucky. And if they wanted to get anything out of those guys down there, they had to get it through Lucky. So now the government's in a bind because this is this has to do with the world war. It's not even yeah. about the mafia anymore. This shit is on a lot larger scale. So they go, they talk to Meyer Lansky, talking to him. Lansky's willing to help them because, you know, as I said, he's a young Jewish kid and he hated the Nazis. He used to go down to some of the uh, rallies that Nazis would have in the United States. And when Jewish people were kind of being, you know, tortured and stuff in the United States, he would go down there with his guys and they would beat the shit out of all the, the Nazis. So he was kind of for it. But of course, he knew he was going to use this to his advantage to help his friend Lucky. So he tells them, you want them to help, you want Lu- Luciano's guys to talk, you're going to have to move Luciano from the horrible prison you have him at now to one in New York. The government was a little reluctant, but finally they were like, okay, fine, we'll move him to the one in New York. And this prison in New York was actually considered like the paradise for criminals because it was super easy, it was super lenient, relaxed and everything. On top of that, Lucky's a mob boss, so he really hasn't made in there. He's starting to look like... Paulie and them in Goodfellas, where they got the best prison suite and just doing whatever they want. Slicing that. that <laughs> Slicing un- those onions, getting it in. Basically, that's what Lucky's doing. He gets to meet with Meyer Lansky. He gets to talk to all his guys and conduct business, but it's not enough for him. Now, at this time, what's going on in World War II is they're getting ready to invade Italy. Who knows better about Italy and Sicily than the mafia? The guys who come from there. They know the land. They know everything about it. So again, the Navy reaches out to Lucky for his help again. They kind of tell him about the weather conditions, the terrain, what it'll be like out there. They invade. And at first, the information that Lucky gave wasn't that beneficial to them. It didn't really and help you know, him out. It didn't help him out that much, but they did take control of Italy at a certain All point. Right. So Lucky's kind of feeling like a patriot now. Like, yo, I just... I helped the United States. Yeah, you, you, you scratch, you <laughs> scratch my back. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, Lucky's not even an American citizen. He's still an Italian. He still comes from the country. He doesn't have his visa in the United States or anything. He's just here doing his thing. So he goes to the government. He says, hey, I want a pardon. I just helped you guys in the war. You took over Italy. I, I pretty much saved you guys. So, I want you guys to pardon me of prison. Let me go. Let me be free. Let me be free. Well, at the time, the governor of New York was none other than Thomas E. Dewey, the same guy that convicted him and put Luciano in jail. It all comes back to Dewey. (laughs) It all comes back to Dewey. But Lucky did help. So, against his will, he kind of had to let Lucky walk. But, of course, he said wasn't just going to be that easy. You're not going to be allowed in the United States. So we're going to deport you to Italy. And you uh, yo, can never you're you're free to go, to <laughs> but out of the state. But out of the state. You can't walk this turf anymore. And so Lucky, he agrees, whatever. 
He takes off. This is only 10 years into his 50-year sentence that he had. So he only serves 10 years. And when he goes out, he goes out big shot. All the gangsters from New York are there. He gets on a ship that looks like a cruise. It's full of women. He's living his life. And he gets back and he's off back to Italy. He was in Italy. He still had his hands in transporting drugs. Not a lot of people knew, but at the time, there was a huge heroin drug trade from Italy to the United States and really all over the world. And Lucky was kind of manning that. He was operating that. And he found a lot of money in Havana, Cuba, which was like a gangster's paradise at that time. The Cuban government was corrupted. They were easy to pay off. A lot of people said it was better than Vegas at the time because it was basically unregulated. They got to do whatever they want. But... When he was in Cuba, he called a meeting with other mobsters from the United States. In Cuba? And in Cuba. So all these mobsters are, are meeting up at Cuba. Yeah, everyone's coming to Cuba. It's like the hot spot for the mafia. So it's pretty much like Kanye inviting everyone for his <laughs> album release. It's Kanye in fucking Wisconsin or wherever the fuck they were. Basically, that's <laughs> not a bad analogy, Chewie. So he calls this meeting. The United States Narcotics Agency finds out that they're going to be meeting there, and they make a huge fuss about it. They're talking about how the Cuban government is letting this happen, so the Cuban government has to cover their own ass, so what they do is they kick Luiciano out. Damn. They say, you got to leave Cuba, Revoke. too. He gets kicked out of Cuba. He's going back to Italy, and you can't really feel bad for the guy because he was still, he had girlfriends, he had mistresses, he gumas. was in Italy doing his thing, he had his gumas. He was living it up, still running business, and at this time, it was actually said that there was an arrest made out for Lucky. He was going to be arrested because they found out he had moved over $150 million worth of heroin to the United States. So they were running the show. Lucky knew that the United States government was going to come for him. They were going to try to get him arrested in Italy or whatever they had to do. I don't know the law that much, but they were were coming for him. They were coming for Luiciano's head. And the final boss move Lucky Luiciano made is before they were able to arrest him, he went out. Poor man had a heart attack at age 64. He went out on his own terms. On his own terms. I ain't getting cuffed. I ain't serving (laughs) nothing. I'm going out on my own terms. that shit, Chewy. We here for terms. Lucky Luiciano, man. Lucky Luiciano is the greatest gangster, in my opinion, of all time. We had to set this thing of ours podcast off right by paying him some respect, talking about him first. Like I said, on this show, we'll get into all kinds of gangsters. We'll talk about everybody all the way up to John Gotti. And I don't want to get too much involved with the guys who are running the show now because I don't want to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, so, so. Find my little dog's head in my, you know, when I wake up. You know, they put his head right at the edge of my bed. I'm screaming like an old man in The Godfather. I don't want to deal with all that. I don't want to walk out and seeing helicopters <laughs> following me everywhere. Yeah. Side know. note, man. We love this shit, man. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This has been This Thing of Ours with Vince and Chewy, a.k.a. Henry and Tommy. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Chewy over here, he's Henry. He's a little bit taller than me. I'm Tommy. I'm the short one. I'm the spicy one. Chewy got his girl. I got got my Karen. Chewy Chewy went for a girl named Karen just so he could be that much like Henry. So we doing it up, man. This has been this thing of ours. We hope you guys join us next week or whenever we put in the next episode out. It was fun talking to you guys about this, and thank you for listening. Peace. Peace out.